Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 17th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Amelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is controversial issues in e-discovery. We're pleased to welcome as our guest, Ralph Losey, a partner in the law firm of Jackson Lewis and a nationally known expert, author, and lecturer on e-discovery. We've had the pleasure of lecturing with Ralph several times and always enjoy his colorful take on e-discovery issues. Thanks for joining us, Ralph. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Well, Ralph, this seems to have been the year of predictive coding, and it's been a very controversial year at that. What is your take on all the controversy? Well, you know, I'm glad people are talking about this. I think it's um, an important subject. And in fact, uh, by coincidence, um, I just happened to work very hard this weekend to write an article uh, on the subject. Uh, Sharon, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it yet, but it just got published Monday on my blog. And um, I used um, uh, Judge Andrew Peck's um, excellent article uh, that he published in uh, LTN um, on predictive coding um, as the kind of a launching point of my discussion, and, and I also tied into it a uh, speech given by a, another leader in this uh, whole area of search, uh, Jason Barron, and I kind of, uh, you know, gave it, gave it a lot of thought, and in fact, I've been thinking about this subject, uh, oh, you know, several years now, trying to figure out uh, what's going on and what's to do, and, and so with that long introduction, I'll tell you that, uh, in general, I'm very much in favor of using technologies such as predictive coding in the practice of the law. But I have my reservations about it, um, which are really threefold, and, and you can see it spelled out in the article. Number one, I think we're just at the beginning of the uh, development curve in this new type of software for law, and I think it's going to get a lot better in the future. Uh, but I don't think it's really reached a place of perfection yet where I would rely upon it entirely and do away with actual human review, too, except for um, exceptional circumstances. That's caveat number one. I don't think the technology is there yet to rely on it completely. Uh, caveat number two is an old saying, John, I know you're very familiar with, and that is garbage in, garbage out. Right, right. Uh, which uh, is another way of saying that if you don't have trained, skilled lawyers in charge of using it, in charge of the project, maybe not hands-on playing with the software, but if you don't have people using this intelligently, it's not going to do the job which it's capable of doing. So despite the New York Times article to the contrary about uh, lawyers and thousands losing their jobs because of new uh, software coming on the market. I, I don't think that's true, but lawyers and thousands should be improving their skills so that they know how to uh, understand it. And then my third reservation, and maybe we can explore all this stuff uh, as we go on, Sharon, but my third reservation is that the, 
the law itself is not quite there yet. Um, Rule 502 really hasn't, I think, uh, fully blossomed and been accepted and understood by the bar and thus by the bench who depends upon the lawyers in front of them to explain what the, these new laws are. And this new uh, evidence code rule 502 um, is not giving us the kind of protection that I think all of us had, uh, had hoped when it first went into effect. But, but I'm not pessimistic either. I think as time goes on, we're going to get better decisions. The judges will start to understand it better and we'll be protected from the uh, inadvertent mistake, which can happen by computer and by people and by both, whereby uh, a privileged document gets accidentally produced. We, we need to make sure the law gives us better protection from those spooks, and we're not quite there yet either. Ralph, another issue that stirred up a lot of dust this year was uh, e-discovery certifications, and that had to hit pretty close to home for you, especially since you, you will offer a training program. What, what are your thoughts on that issue? Apparently, people most like uh, certification because, I mean, in general, um, <laughs> you know, my competitors that basically are offering certification uh, and then a, a course of preparation to pass pass it. I mean, it's, right now, they're clobbering me in the marketplace, which, which is fine. I mean, that appears to be what people want. Um, I don't sell uh, certification. I sell a lot of hard work. I, I sell 75 hours to 300 hours of study and learning, and training. So my thing is I'm an educator. I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Florida School of Law, where I perfected this online program. I've taught it for a couple of years now, gotten good feedback from the law students. And so I think I think I got a, a pretty damn good uh, training program set up, but it's not a, a ticket to uh, uh, a quick certification. The only certification I'll offer is entirely optional is that if you've completed the program, all 84 classes, and, and I have ways of knowing whether you've done it, but, um, you know, you could be just sitting there with your with the screen open on all 84 classes, not actually reading the material or listening to the videos. That's kind of unlikely, but it's possible. So it's also kind of like a fraud control for employers that may be paying you to do that. The kind of control, by the way, that you don't have at all in an in-person live CLE where half the people sit in the back row and just look at the blackberries all the time. But but I will offer a law school-type written essay exam if you want to prove that you uh, not only took the course, but you actually understand the material such that if you were one of my students at the University of Florida, you would pass the course. Uh, if you want to go through that um, interesting exercise, your ability to understand the subject that I've taught online, then I will certify that you passed it. And if, oops, you fail it, I'll give you a, a free redo and nobody will know about it. And you can try it again to pass it. <laughs> so I will certify that you passed the course. Uh, but I will not just certify you're competent in e-discovery. Uh, as arrogant as I am, Sharon, I don't have the you know, uh, the, the arrogance to pretend to say that I am the all-knowing expert in new discovery such that I can certify whether you or John are confident in new discovery. I, I just don't, I just don't think anybody is there. And, and the other, my other problem is in my state, the state of Florida, the Florida bar certifies, uh, competence in specialty fields of law. And what I do is I teach e-discovery law which includes necessarily an understanding of John's world of technology, but 
it's a mixture of, of law and technology, and it, it is a legal field. And so when Florida uh, is going to recognize a specialty, which it, it doesn't now in any discovery, this would be a test which would be set up by the Florida Bar, administered by them, and they would certify it. Um, I doubt very much that the Florida Bar is going to be doing that within, you know, sooner than 10 years or so, because frankly, as far as I know, I'm the only full-time partner in a law firm in Florida that all they do is do discovery. It, it, it's not that widely recognized specialty group yet. So, you know, what are they going to do? Well, I have a test for me and, and uh, uh, 10 of my closest friends. But, but, but someday they will, and, and that's where it belongs. The bars will uh, ultimately certify that. I, I agree. That's probably true, and I appreciate your generosity about letting people take the uh, redo because I barely made it through physics for humanists. <laughs> so, re- redoing was was really helpful to me at the time. Uh, anyway, there's been a lot of buzz about whether we need to amend the federal rules of civil procedure yet again to address e-discovery concerns and problems. Is it your view that we need to do that, Ralph? Well, you know, my view is changing. Just to, to show that, uh, you know, it's possible for an old dog to uh, learn new tricks and keep an open mind. Because if you'd asked me last month, probably when you and I talked about it uh, last, I would have said, no, nah, I don't think we need it. What we need are we need judges and lawyers, mainly lawyers, that understand our old new rules, the ones that came out uh, in 06, the end of 06. Now, what we really need are more skilled practitioners. We, we do not need new rules. But you know what? I've been uh, going into this pretty deep and I've heard a lot of passionate arguments on the other side that are a strong proponents of revising the rules again. And a rules revision process takes two or three years. So we're talking about new rules uh, that might go into effect in 2014. And I, I've now become persuaded that this is a worthwhile exercise. And if the uh, Federal Rules Committee can indeed uh, reach agreement on one or two uh, new principles, probably uh, it'll pertain to preservation and maybe also they'll pertain to sanctions, that that might be helpful to help uh, uh, the practitioners um, who, unlike me, don't have the luxury of only doing new discovery. It might be helpful to... Um, to have some additional guidance in the rule. So I, I, I've, uh, my opinion's changed on that. Hmm. Ralph, what do you, we've heard a lot of times, a lot of folks that have mentioned, and, and you kind of alluded to it in your, in your answer you just gave, that um, some of it is really the, the judges' and failure to, to truly manage the cases. And, and maybe this gets into that argument that you said you're shifting away from now. But um, can you expand on that a, a, a little bit more? I, I'm kind of still of the opinion that, you know, we need our, our, our judges to better manage things. Uh, maybe I haven't jumped over as far as you yet, but what's your thoughts on that? Well, some of the rules proposals do pertain to Rule 26 and do pertain to um, the mandatory meet-and-greet conference between lawyers. And, and one of the things is to actually make it mandatory and have judges insist that these meetings actually occur and that at the meetings they actually discuss um, e-discovery. You know, the way the rule reads now, it says may discuss the following. But what would happen if they changed the may to shall? I mean, there's simple things like that, and this is not so much the judges, this is the lawyers, uh, to force them to say whether they're going to do e-discovery or not. Right now, the rules just say they may discuss it. 
Uh, right now, the rules don't require a 16B hearing uh, where the judges then go over this and say, counsel, what are you going to do about e-discovery? What about a change that makes that mandatory? That's the kind of thing you're talking about with more active management of, of the judges. Um, one of the down drawbacks to active management by judges is that very few judges are like, um, you know, the leaders that we all know, uh, Judge Facciola. Uh, Judge Peck, uh, Judge Graham. I mean, there's a there's a list of about 20 judges that really seem to know this stuff pretty well. But yeah, Judge Wax they, is pretty opinionated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even they, uh, uh, they're doing criminal matters uh, one day, all kinds of other matters. I mean, they may only spend 10 to 20 percent of their professional practice thinking and doing e-discovery. Whereas for folks like us, I mean, that's our life. Not much of a life, maybe, but, you know, we love it. <laughs> and that's all we do. Uh, and so, you know, you can't really expect the, the judges uh, to be uh, masters of the subject. It really does depend on their having good practitioners. And you really can't expect the, the judge to put aside the rest of their docket, the thousand other cases they may have, to spend three or four days just dealing with any discovery issue, although sometimes that's what it takes. So I can't blame the judges too much. I wish there was more active management. Um, I think part of that solution would be let's have more training for judges. Let's let's have the federal government invest more money, put more people back to work that are trainers of judges, and let's hire more judges uh, so that uh, they won't have these crazy workloads and they'll be able to have the time to do more of the active management like you have in Europe, where it's a different, a whole different deal being a judge over there than it is here. So, yes, I'm a favor of a, a judicial activism, more management, uh, and um, but I think they have to be clever about it, and I think we got to be realistic. Is there's, there's no free lunch here, and we as a people, we as a government, need to invest more money into the judicial system. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Gallivan, Gallivan, and Omelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Do you need to strategize, review and produce documents for litigation, government investigations, or HSR second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter? Digital War Room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents, realizing savings of 80% or more, and giving you greater control over e-discovery. Experience end-to-end e-discovery on your Windows desktop, on your internal network, or in our hosted review center. Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's digitalwarroom.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too.
Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to Ralph Losey, a partner with Jackson Lewis, about controversial issues in e-discovery. Ralph, you pointed out when we lectured together in Salt Lake City recently that, that our major problem is TMI, too much personal data, simply just too much data, and, and the volume seems to double every year, year and a half or so. That has enormous e-discovery implications, doesn't it? Well, I think it's huge. Um, and my good friend Jason Barron and I talk about this a lot. In fact, we even made a YouTube video all about it uh, called uh, eDiscovery Did You Know? Uh, two years old now, but we flashed all of the amazing facts about the growth of information and its impact on the law. Uh, I don't think this can be underestimated. Uh, I'd encourage all the listeners to check out Jason Barron's many writings on it. I've also written about it a lot on my blog and in my books. And, um, that, you know, it explains why we're all having so much trouble with, with uh, e-discovery is that we're now, there's too much information. And, you know, uh, 100, 200, 300 emails a day. And then who's, who's there to file it for us? Uh, nobody. But I don't want to be too pessimistic. I want to put the other side of that is that while our, um, Information is growing, and our storage space is growing. So are our processing speeds, and so are our artificial intelligence software. And I think they're going to catch up soon. We've got Watson. We've got Siri coming online. We're going to have more and more of these predictive coding things. And I think the computers that got us into this mess are going to get us out of this mess, too, <laughs> as, as soon as we learn how to harness this kind of artificial intelligence that's also part of the uh, computer system. Yeah, as long as they don't start calling it HAL. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be answering to HAL either. Um, in, in your Salt Lake City keynote, Ralph, you mentioned e-discovery extortion, which was certainly a, a, a controversial phrase. Can you explain what you mean by that and how we solve that problem? can't believe I said that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we all know, uh, those of us in the business, every lawyer, you know, tends to think that all e-discovery might be extortionate, and I, I don't go that far, but there are some attorneys that aren't really after the information in your client's uh, computer system. They don't really care what the emails say. What they care about is to increase the cost of discovery so that you'll be more likely to just settle the case and make them go away. Now, that's the use of uh, discovery for an improper purpose. It's nothing new. This went on in the paper world. I've been dealing with this problem for 31 years. Uh, fortunately, most lawyers are ethical and honest, and they use discovery for the proper purpose, and that is to get at the truth. But there are, have always been lawyers that uh, don't. If they use it because maybe they want to embarrass you, or maybe they've got tried to set a deposition of the CEO, things like that. And it's just been uh, with the advent of e-discovery and the widespread misunderstanding about how to control costs, this has allowed these few unscrupulous uh, requesting parties, if you will, to uh, make e-discovery in kind of a, uh, of a tool to try and drive up expenses potential for embarrassment, potential for mistakes. And, and we don't want that. And we want our judges to be aware that this uh, does still go on and to stop it. Ralph, you, you've noted that we, we seem to be having a terrible time forming e-discovery teams. And I would tend to agree with that. A uh, lot's been written about it, but the experts don't necessarily agree on, on what the cause of that is. What, what do you see as, as the cause? Well, 
when I talk to my friends about it, I, I haven't run into a lot of disagreement. Uh, the, the consensus that I see, and I'm sure we're going to disagree on something, but consensus I see for why the teams are having such difficulty is that they're not getting the top-down support that they need to succeed, number one. If you don't have the total support from the, the king of your world, CEO, uh, general counsel, whoever it is, it won't work. And number two, directly related to that, it has to be adequately funded. Uh, number three, it has to be adequately staffed. And staffing and funding and support, they all go together. In other words, if you just take three people and uh, who are already 100% fully occupied and you say, now you're part of this team and we want you to do this, that, and the other activities. Well, we didn't have time to do their old activities and now you're, you're adding on new activities. Uh, that's a recipe for failure for any project. Um, and another important thing I think everybody agrees on is that you need to train these folks. Uh, uh, they need to be trained on what to do. Um, and I go even further than that. And what one of the things that I've been offering for years now is to serve as a coach for these teams. I train them. I give them the plays. I uh, tell them, good job. You need to do more of this. Or look, that's the problem. But I don't actually do it for them. I'm the coach. Occasionally, if they get into trouble, I'll argue with the ref for them. But, uh, you know, every team needs a good coach, needs good trainers, and they need funding. They get all that stuff. It can work. Well, let, let me uh, ask a final question here that still seems to cause controversy. You wouldn't think it would be so controversial after all this uh, time, but it is. And that is, when do you think a litigation hold is triggered? And secondly, do you think that the failure to issue a written litigation hold is per se negligence? Oh, that's a hot one. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's a, a matter of, uh, of factual circumstances, very fact-intensive. Everyone would love it if there was some simplistic rule, line in the sign, clear that you could know, oh, now we've got it triggered. Uh, the, but the, the truth is, in federal practice, it isn't now. The black letter law is when you reasonably anticipate litigation. And But what does that mean? Does a demand letter trigger it? Uh, obviously, uh, once suit is filed, uh, it's triggered. Uh, so that, that's a no-brainer. But, you know, the plaintiffs are going to have a duty to preserve um, way before a suit is filed because no plaintiff decides I'm going to sue and then the next day files suit. This can be sometimes a many months of preparation and process. And so that, that's when... The plaintiff's duty to preserve what needs to begin is when they and the lawyer have said, okay, we're going to sue, now let's get ready. Uh, a lot of people overlook that and tend to think it's just the defendant's problem. I, I, uh, you know, I really think it's, it's everyone's problem to make sure that evidence is not destroyed, and, and that's just a common-sense notion. Um, the written versus verbal, uh, you know, there's controversy on that. Even Judge Shinlin in the Pension Committee, even though she said that verbal notice per se gross negligence, she did not say that that automatically should uh, lead to sanction. She said it's, it's a gut thing. It depends upon the facts, and she doesn't expect perfection. So I defend uh, Judge Shinlin in that opinion by uh, pointing out that even there, even even in this, you know, the most extreme case, it doesn't mean you're going to get sanctioned just because you rely upon uh, verbal notice. But as our friend Craig Ball likes to say, you know, verbal notice is uh, worth the paper it's written on. 
he he does have a way with a phrase doesn't he (laughs) um i think we're kind of at the end of our time here i know ralph the three of us could talk e-discovery all day long i Mm. I do want listeners to know that ralph's blog the e-discovery team is just a phenomenal blog and and i did read that post on monday which was great um can you tell folks uh, uh how to get to your blog and how they they should best contact you uh, yes, um, contact me through the blog, which has my bio and my uh, Gmail address and all of that. It's ediscoveryteam.com, e-discoveryteam.com, or you can just Google me, and unfortunately, you know, I'm everywhere on the Internet. That's my second home, and uh, <laughs> I'd love to have you come by and leave me a comment. Well, thank you for joining us today, Ralph. Uh, yours is one of the most prominent voices in e-discovery, so it was really instructive to get your take on some of the controversial issues in e-discovery. And, and thanks for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.